your scripture to the book of Malachi as we finish up our series on the minor prophets. We've taken 12 weeks to look each week at one of the minor prophets, and we come to our last one, which is Malachi. No, he's not an Italian prophet, Malachi. It's Malachi. That's on page 1487 of the Blue Pew Bible. I encourage you to keep it open on your lap as I'll be referring to it throughout the sermon. Many of you love C.S. Lewis, as I do, and he's ultimately quotable, and perhaps you've heard this quote before, where C.S. Lewis wrote, Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. Moderation is good in many areas of life. Moderation is good where eating is concerned, where television and gaming and leisure activities, the list can go on and on. Even Paul tells us in Timothy that even wine in moderation is good for you. Moderation is a good rule of thumb in life. It's a terrible rule of thumb spiritually. Scripture from beginning to end tells us to be all in with God. It's an all or nothing proposition. From Abel's, uh, uh, from Cain's half-hearted offering in Genesis 4 to Ananias and Sapphira's half-hearted offering in Acts 5 to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 that had forgotten their first love and had moderated God exhorts exhorts us to be spiritually passionate, to not be half-hearted, to not be apathetic in your relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And I use that term specifically, the Lord God Almighty. That's what Malachi came to preach against. God's people were not in rebellion as in times past. But they were a little like today's church. Religion in moderation. And perhaps, like some people's hearts in this room, half-hearted in your relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Half-heartedness shows itself in three areas of life as we're going to look at today in Malachi. In your relationships, in your worship, and in your love of God. Look with me at verse 1 of Malachi. We're just going to look at verse 1, which says, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Let's stop there just for a second and set up the historical context here. We're about a hundred years past Haggai and Zechariah, the last two sermons I preached on. A hundred years past that. We're about the year 420 BC. The temple has been rebuilt. The sacrifices restarted 
at the second temple. Nehemiah has come and has rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. God has sent Ezra, and Ezra has rebuilt the spiritual life to a degree. The historic story of Ezra, I mean of of Esther, back in Babylon, is history at this point. And several generations of God's people have been living back in the promised land. And it's not all it was cracked up to be. Living in Jerusalem in 420 B.C. was not all it was cracked up to be. So they slowly, slowly over time, slid into religious formalism, just going through the motions. They had a form of godliness, as we just read in in Timothy, a form of godliness, but they weren't understanding the power of it. And so Yahweh sends a final messenger. Malachi literally means, in Hebrew, my messenger. The I on the end of Malach is the possessive form. It just means my messenger. So we're not clear if this is a person or if this is just a messenger from God, a prophet. It doesn't really matter. He brings a message to his people, and that message is be careful of spiritual moderation. Watch out for half-hearted love towards God. Beware of spiritual apathy. Beware of spiritual apathy. And Malachi brings his message in a series of six question and answers called disputations. I continue to encourage you to read ahead when we preach through these things. If you have, you see, and you read this week, that Malachi is divided into these six, six question and answers. These disputations, as they're called. We find these questions and answers in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. The second one in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 12. The third disputation in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And then the fourth one picks up in the next verse in 2, chapter 17, all the way through three, chapter 3, verse 5. The fifth disputation is chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. And the final question and answer takes up the rest of the book, chapter 3, verses 13 through the end of the book. These six questions and answers can be grouped. Basically, they have three themes to them, which I just told you a second ago. Apathy in your relationships, apathy in worship, and apathy in your love for God. And we're going to take them in that order. First, your apathy in relationships. Your apathy in our relationships. Apathetic relationships. Half-hearted love towards other people. This is found in the middle two questions and answers. I ask you to turn there to chapter 2, verse 13. We'll start our reading there. God says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and you wail because no longer, he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. In why one? 
because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all we do is evil, all we do, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I will come near to you in judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers in their wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. We see here in these middle two question and answers that they have wearied the Lord, first of all. You have wearied me, he says. They, they've exasperated the Lord with the same questions that we do. Why do the evil prosper? And yet, look at us. While God's people are barely getting by, why do the evil prosper? That's a question, an age-old question. Where's the justice in that, they're saying in verse 17. To which God answers, as he usually does, that justice is coming in in the future, in the coming of his Son. The Lord you are seeking will come and bring justice, he says. Here, the first and second advent are fused together. We see parts of of Christ's first coming and parts of Christ's second coming here. But he returns to the issue at hand, which is relationships, down in verse 5 of chapter 3. And he says, listen, don't worry about the justice for that situation. He says, so I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages and oppress the widow and fatherless and alien in their midst. He's coming near to them in justice. And they are guilty of being apathetic in their relationships with each other, perjuring, lying to each other, defrauding each other, oppressing each other, the widows and the orphans. Depriving foreigners of justice. These are all forms of broken relationships. Do you realize that? When you lie to someone, that's an evidence that that relationship is broken. Shows apathy in that relationship, and that's counter-gospel. The gospel always raises people up, doesn't it? Consider others better than yourself. 
Honor one another above yourselves, our, our memory verse. A person filled with the Spirit of Christ acts like that in relationship. Especially in the most important physical relationship here on earth, and that is the marriage relationship, which he talks about here. Look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 2. It says, you ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. Why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. So true where marriage is concerned and divorce is concerned. We think that we live in a particular uh, era, era where this is, this is a problem of convenience divorce. It's not. That's what God is getting at here. They were divorcing each other out of convenience. They were breaking faith with the wives of their youth. Divorce was rampant. If there's one physical relationship here on earth that should, we should not be apathetic to, not be half-hearted in, that's the marriage relationship. Interestingly here, God uses the word breaking faith. Did you notice that? He said it twice. It points to marriage primarily not being a physical relationship, but a spiritual relationship. Marriage is a spiritual relationship. In fact, he says, guard yourself in your spirit. Again, putting an exclamation point on that. Marriage is primarily a spiritual endeavor. I love what Mark Dever says on this. He says, through Malachi, we begin to see how invasive Christianity is. It spreads to every part of our life. Every part of our life. God calls us to take seriously our marriage covenant. Work on that relationship. Care for that relationship. Don't allow that relationship to drift. Because marriage is a spiritual endeavor. And if you don't spiritually work on it, I will tell you that the flesh, its natural drift is toward indifference and apathy. That's the natural drift of our flesh. It will drift in the direction of indifference. And God hates where that apathy leads. And that's what he's getting at. He hates divorce. He hates where that leads. Now, this is not a guilt trip for those sitting here who are divorced. Nor is it a victory lap for those who are not divorced. That's not the point here. It's a wake-up call to all of us where our relationships are, that they, apathy creeps into every relationship, including and especially the marriage relationship. And that apathy even extends to the unmarried. Did you notice that? If you read through Malachi this week, you notice that in chapter 2, if you go back up to, cha- to verse 11, which we didn't read, God's word says, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying 
the daughter of a foreign god. What was happening in 420 in the promised land is that Jews were marrying non-Jews. They were marrying outside the faith. I have to remind you that God never had in, in, in mind that, that this was a racial purity issue. It was a spiritual purity issue. The reason he said don't marry outside of a Jew is because they, were, they would be marrying outside of the faith. It's a spiritual command, not a racial command. Yahweh knew that if they married outside the faith, their faith would be lost. And it's the same today. This is a word for all of those sitting here who are not married yet. Consider what Malachi is saying here. Consider how important it is to marry somebody who believes that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. That's a spiritual, a critical spiritual thing for you to consider. Be thoughtful in who you choose to date. Be thoughtful, be careful on who you choose to date, on who you choose to begin giving your heart to. Marry a believer. And I mean this euphemism in its true sense, for God's sake. For the sake of God. Do not become unequally yoked, because that path is a path that leads to apathy. It leads to half-heartedness towards God. It leads to divided allegiances with kids, with interests, with hobbies, with where you spend your time. Next area we're going to explore today is not just apathy in our relationships, but apathy in worship. This is the second charge that he gives, and this is, as we work outward from the inside of Malachi, these are the second and fifth question and answers that we're going to look at. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 6. And following, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. I want to pause there for a second. There are two principles that we're going to look at here in Malachi that have to do with worship. And that is worship demands good stewardship and worship demands great sacrifice. And this first question and answer, this first disputation gets at the stewardship principle. Now, what you tithe is not the be-all, end-all of your worship. Let me just say that. What you tithe is not the be-all, end-all of your worship. However, 
If you read scripture, you see that it is an incredible barometer to where your heart is. It's an external barometer to where your heart is. And how you understand and relate to your possessions is very important to the Lord. In the Old Covenant, Yahweh set up a very structured giving of 10% tithe, and then offerings on top of that. That's why we call it tithes and offerings. You had a 10% tithe, and then all the offerings throughout the year would probably add up to another 10 to 15% of your income. So a faithful Israelite would give up to about 25% of what they earned in their tithe, in their offering. And they are withholding that in the time of Malachi. They're not bringing that in. And so God uses a very interesting word. Did you notice it? You're robbing from me. You're robbing me. Interesting word. Robbing insinuates that it's not theirs. They're not giving him his own possessions. This points to the scriptural principle of stewardship. We talk a lot about that. That we are stewards. That they are stewards. That they are estate managers. That they're curators, if you will. Or caretakers of God's money. Some of you here are caretakers of property. You go in and you take care of a property when people are away. And you would never think that that is your, yours to do with what you, you want. You would never think that. You know it's somebody else's. That same principle applies to everything God has given you. We should not think of it as ours. But how do we think of our possessions, really? We, we do. I mean, that's natural. We think we earned this, we worked hard for this, this is ours. That's kind of where our heart is. Explorer Thomas Hearn in his diary helps get at this perspective. Hearn was an explorer up in northern Canada and he was seeking out the mouth or the source of the Coppermine River in the late 1700s. And he wrote in his diary about the, this expedition. And he wrote that as he began his journey, Indians attacked him and stole most of his food and supplies. And this is what he wrote the day after that. He wrote, The weight of our baggage being so much lightened, our next day's journey was more swift and pleasant. In Hearn's mind, he was on a journey to a destination that was of ultimate interest and importance to him. And thus, the loss of a few sides of bacon and some flour sacks meant nothing more than easing his load. Contrast that with what, what, what the perspective would have been had Thomas Hearn been holed up somewhere in a cabin, resolved to spend his last days eking out his existence on his supplies, the loss of some stores from the Indians would have probably worried him almost to death. I hope that gives us some perspective on how we are to view what God has given us. Where's your heart where tithing is concerned? Do you consider it a lightening of your load? 
because you're on your way to somewhere of ultimate importance and interest? Is it simply giving back to God something that's already his? Or are you holed up, hoping to eke out of the stores until the end of your life? Nancy Guthrie writes, our giving or lack thereof is a window into how we really see God in ourselves. If we see God as a gracious giver and we see ourselves as stewards of all that he has entrusted us, we'll be glad givers. But if we see him as untrustworthy in ourselves as the ones who have generated our wealth, our giving will be reluctant. I find that true in my own heart. God has indicted them on their lack of stewardship, but also he indicts them in a second area where stewardship is concerned, their lack of sacrifice. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Giving is part of understanding that stewardship and giving should always be sacrificial. In the Levitical law, the Israelites were told to bring their first fruits, being the first of the harvest, and bring the best of their animals to sacrifice. First fruits and the best of their animals. And what we see here is they're bringing the leftovers, aren't they? They're bringing the blind animals, the diseased animals, the animals with three legs, the animals that, that are not good breeding stock. They say, oh, I'll give those to the Lord. And it still counts because I'm doing it. They were going through the motions, but their heart was in the wrong place. They were worshiping in a half-hearted apathetic way but God always demands that we worship him with our best with our first fruits in a sacrificial manner what does this look like today we don't bring animals to worship anymore we don't bring wheat and barley to worship we don't bring the the first press of oil to worship anymore what does it look like in our lives to worship God in a passionate way in a sacrificial way well I have a couple suggestions very practical. As a matter of fact, I have 10 suggestions for you. Very practical. How do you give your best in worship? Get a good night's sleep on Saturday night. It starts there. It'll change your Saturdays. That's sacrificial. Wake up early on Sunday. If you're waking up at... 10.15 to get here at 10.30, I will tell you right now you're not giving your best to God. You're still waking up. Realize that your week builds to Sunday, number three. 
Realize that Sunday is a culmination. Therefore, pray during the week that the Spirit will actually prepare you to hear this word that I'm preaching to you today. That the Lord will prepare your heart and soften it in your mind. Four, contemplate the call to worship. When the elders read the the call to worship, do you realize what's happening there spiritually? God is asking you, is, is opening the doors of heaven and asking you to come into his throne room. Some days that should make you tear up. Five, sing with understanding. Sing with understanding. Don't just go through the motions. Engage your mind. I want to ask you a question right now. How many of you, don't have to raise your hand, how many of you know what Gloria in Excelsior Deo means? If you don't know what that means, you need to find out what you're singing. You have to engage your mind. Next, sing. (laughs) Sometimes I look out, And people aren't singing. I don't know the reason for that. There's many reasons. Could be tired. Don't think you have a good voice. Embarrassed. Let me tell you, God cherishes your voice. He's listening for you to give him glory, to give him honor by singing to him. And I tell this sometimes to people that don't sing. If you're a father and your little son who can barely talk, and it's your birthday, and he tries to sing happy birthday, and he muddles through it, and he maybe doesn't know the words, but he, and he doesn't even know the tune, but he's trying. Does that please you? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's how God looks at you. Sing to your God. Seven, give regularly, cheerfully, and sacrificially. Just talked about that. Eight, pray out loud or silently during the time of prayer. Don't sit there passively. Don't sit there listening for other people. Be praying and then pause when somebody else prays and then pick up your prayers. Pray out loud. I challenge you, those of you who who don't like to utter prayers verbally, challenge yourself today. Next week, I'm going to pray out loud during that time. Nine, listen actively to the sermon. Listen actively to the sermon. I don't know what's best for you here. I would encourage everyone to take notes, even if you're not a note taker. It keeps you alert. Apply the word of God to your life as you're hearing it. The spirit is active. Allow it to challenge you and exhort you and encourage you. And ten, remember, you don't go to church. You are the church. You are the temple that he indwells. It's not an activity that we do. Bring your best to God. Lastly, in the root of it all, apathetic love. 
apathetic love. This is the root problem, and it bookends Malachi. We talked about this in Sunday school. Many times God's Spirit uses bookends, the same theme, to give you the, the major point, and that's what he does in Malachi. That's the root problem. Apathetic love. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 13. It says, You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, What have we said against you? Verse 14, You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. People were basically here complaining that serving God was a futile effort. Why were they saying that? Why were they saying it's futile to serve God? Probably for some of the same reasons we do, actually. We, have not, we don't see the Lord's promises coming true in our life. And that's certainly what was happening at the time of Malachi. They weren't seeing the glorious promises of God coming true. Here they were in the promised land a hundred years or so after Haggai, and there's no great agricultural blessing going on that they read about and they heard about from the prophets. There's no land flowing with milk and honey here. They're basically living in a, on a subsistence level with wheat crops. There's no great city of Jerusalem. You have, you have a, a, a wall cobbled together. No shining city on a hill that the prophets told them about, but a ramshackle, barely fortified suburb of Persia. No grand temple that Ezekiel laid out in his visions. No grand temple but a small shadow of its former self temple. No magnificent, powerful king sitting on David's throne that's throughout the prophets, but a weak puppet ruler of Persia sitting on the throne. They'd been given glorious visions of the future by the prophets, and it had not been realized. Thus, they began to lose faith. They began to question God's love. Oh, you tell us that all this is going to come true, that all these great promises, but I don't see them in my life. Does this sound familiar to anybody? That's what looking at the physical too much will do to you guys. That's what looking at keeping up with the Joneses will do to your faith. That's what the poison of envy and covetousness and greed will do to your faith. It'll begin, you'll begin hearing coming out of your mouth or even in your inner monologue. What, what use is it to believe in God? What advantages are there to being the people of God? I had an article given to me this week by Sam Albury, one of the Gospel Coalition guys. And he wrote an article called Why Christmas is the Antidote to FOMO. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. And the article started by talking about the increasing lists of these 100 things to do before you die. Of the 50 things to eat before you die. Of the, of the 100 things to do. All these lists that are coming out. We are increasingly encouraged not to miss the best of what this life has to offer. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. 
And these, these lists actually feed into our covetousness, doesn't it? It feeds it. I'm missing out on this life. I've got to eke the most out of this life. Because this life is all there is. And if we are not experiencing the best in this life, then it feeds the same question that the Israelites are asking. Why am I, why am I a Christian? Why am I serving God when I see all these other people fulfilling those lists and I'm not? Or I'm called not to? What are the benefits of belonging to God if I can't squeeze the most out of this life? It's futile to serve God. What the scripture says, the root of that emotion is even deeper. The root of that emotion is even deeper. And that's revealed in the very first question they ask God in chapter 1. Look with me at verse 2. God says, I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? You were asked that question? Do you really love me, God? I don't believe that you love me. That's what they're asking. And look at what God says in response. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The root of the entire book of Malachi, of our entire faith, is asking the question, does God love you? Does God really love you? And we doubt that God loves us. That's what they're questioning, right? How have you loved us? They're saying, I don't think you love me. And God answers in two ways. He says, look back and look forward. He tells them first to look back. Look back at their patriarchs. Look back at Jacob. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. He goes all the way back to the patriarchs, and he says to them, I chose you. I chose you. You doubt that I love you? I chose you. Interestingly, most times when we read this, we read it again in the book of Romans, what does our flesh do with it? When you read that, what's your reaction? Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. What does our flesh do with it? How could God hate somebody? How, why did he... Why did he Hey, Esau, hold it, God, you're not fair. Isn't that interesting what our flesh does with that question? What it does with that? We end up doing what exactly we see here the Israelites doing, accusing God of not loving. When actually God is communicating the very opposite to his people by saying that. Jacob, I loved. I loved you. I chose you. I want you. You are mine. But Malachi also asked them not only just to look back, but to look forward. See God's love. 
That's what he's telling them throughout the book. There's a couple wonderful prophecies of the coming Christ. We see it in chapter 3 especially. Verse 1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Who's the temple? God's people. He's coming to his people. I'm going to borrow from, from Albury's article and say Christmas actually is the antidote if you're feeling like you're not loved by God. Do you realize what God sacrificed to come and be born as a baby? He sacrificed his majesty. He sacrificed paradise in heaven. He sacrificed perfect relationship with the Godhead. He sacrificed being born under the law, having to live under the law. He sacrificed not being, being uh, swayed by temptation. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. If you read Philippians 2, you see that it was a very humbling thing he did. So Christmas, if you're feeling like you're not loved, just think about what Christ did for you in this season, in the Incarnation. Ponder that and let that overcome your questions. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Now, Lord, as we go into your the Lord's Supper that you instituted, I pray that we will feel your love tangibly as we grasp the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.